The New Testament reading is from James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. If you are visiting with us, we're glad that you're here, and these uh, lovely pictures are not a permanent part of the building. Um, I kind of wish they were because they bring some color to uh, Portland, which is kind of an eerily white place, uh, tends to be at least, Um, and also like them because it makes it look like it's packed in here, and I feel like I've got like an upper deck, you know, to preach to. Um, and I generally interpret my environment based upon how it reflects upon me. So I really want them to stay. It makes me feel much more important, you know, all these people looking in from the top deck. We are talking about the seven deadly sins, um, and I can relate. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Tombstone, 1992 version. It's actually quite good, and it's fairly historically accurate, but Wyatt Earp is um, played by Kurt Russell and Doc Holliday by Val Kilmer. And at one point in the movie, Wyatt Earp looks over to Val Kilmer and he's wondering about this uh, villain, Ringo, who's the other gunman in the movie. And he says, what makes Ringo do the things that he does? And Doc Holliday says, a man like Ringo has got a great big empty hole running right through the middle of him. He can never kill enough, steal enough, or inflict enough pain ever to fill it. And Wyatt asks, what does he want? Revenge, he wants. For what, Wyatt asked? For being born. Ringo lacked the normal social restraints that you and I have, at least presumably, I hope that you have. If he wanted something, he just took it by force. But Doc sees something very profound about his life, that it's never enough, that he can take whatever he wants, and it's never enough. And if you've seen the movie, you know that Ringo died from this empty hole, from his envy, because what he coveted most was Doc Holliday's calm and his speed with the gun. And he pursued that envy, that envy all the way to a bullet in the head. It was for him, in fact, a deadly sin. And this is a pretty good picture of what we're talking about with the 
how serious this issue of envy is, that it tends to rot us from the inside out. We're looking at the seven deadly sins during Lent to examine that great big empty hole, that chronic unhappiness, or what Doc Holliday calls that great big empty hole that leads us to treat our world and our neighbors sort of like shopping malls that we want to acquire from them. But we want to go beyond just simply noticing these behaviors, noticing these thoughts, anger, greed, coveting, envy, and ask why. What's beneath that? What is motivating that? What does it tell us about ourselves? And of all of these, envy is probably the most strange because you can look at the other seven deadly sins and you can see the payoff. But envy doesn't have a payoff. With gluttony, at least you get to enjoy the food. You get the pleasure of eating. But with envy, you're just made to be more and more hungry. It's a a feeling of emptiness, sort of chronic unhappiness that becomes this fire that lights us on fire and it consumes us from the inside out. Now, what is this what does this come from? What is the root? Well, if you've had children, if you've been around children, if you've been a child, we know that we come into the world wanting. Kids are black holes of want. You can never stuff enough provision, responsiveness, love into it. They want. Parents, am I right? Of course, we know this. And they express every single one of these wants with what? A polite raised hand, a smile, a giggle. No, everything is expressed with utter wailing, with tears, with falling on the floor. Why did God make them like this? It'd be so much easier if it was a little bit more pleasant sound coming out of their mouths of want. But we are hardwired with this sense of entitlement. Kids think, I get all the things, and if anyone is standing in my way, I'm going to let them know, and I'm going to seek to reacquire this thing. If they don't get fed when they want, if they don't nap when they want, if a brother or sister takes a toy, it's game over, life over for them and for the parents. And what do we do as parents or as adults? We intervene, and we help them understand how silly it is to fight over this toy, fight over a doll or a crayon. Come on. Grow up, because we've learned the important life lesson that you can't always get what you want. But we don't always believe, right, the Rolling Stones when they sing that. We want to, but it it doesn't connect with us, because we're not satisfied with getting just what we need. We want all the things. We envy what other people have. What causes fights and quarrels among you, James asks. Don't they come from desires that battle within you? And it sounds like he's writing to a bunch of toddlers. As we grow older, the things that we fight about, the things that we want, desire, they become more expensive, they become more sophisticated and bigger, and the fights that we have are more complicated. And yet, We see this in our children 
and we see this in kids, that their envy affects the community that they live in, their family, their relationships. And James is saying here that envy is not this private sin, but it's communitarian. It affects those around us, and it comes, even with external effects, it comes from an internal reality that we have these conflicted desires that wage war within us. There's a civil war going on, and that any turmoil that we experience in relationship, in a close friendship, in the church is a result of the accumulation of all of these internal conflicts happening that are manifesting themselves with wanting, with I got to have this, I got to have my way. Now, this word for desire is the word from which we get our word hedonism. That is pleasure-seeking, sensuality. And on one hand, because there's this battle going on, we see this divided heart, and unless you're just a monster, a sociopath, you, you possess some internal boundary to this pursuit. You have a sense of what's right. You don't want to harm someone else. We call this our conscience or a sense of altruism. We have that on one side, and yet we have this other desire, this hedonistic desire. What makes me feel best right now? What do I want most in this particular situation? This is what I want, and this other person is an impediment to this. And this begins to manifest itself in our relationships. A hedonist evaluates everything by how it affects them and other people based upon how they enhance that desire, that sense. Years ago, I found this non-sequitur cartoon. I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of like a far side type of thing. It's very perverse. And there's a guy, and he's standing against the wall, and he's standing in front of a firing squad. And he's got his arms in the air and says, okay, so we're agreed. It's all about me. And it's called the victory of egocentricity. Is you end up facing a firing squad. And it is all about you. Everyone is pointing their gun at you. This desire to be the center of everything, to have our wants, to accumulate things, to acquire them from other people, it constricts our circle of concern because people are objects to be used, and if we realize that we can't get something, if they don't play this ball game with us, then we excise them, we push them away. And so it limits our circle of concern for other people. We don't see them as persons to serve. They're not objects of divine love that God wants to communicate through me too. But they're people that don't give me access to what I want. They block our self-gratification, our hedonism. So, on one level, relational conflicts, church conflicts, conflicts at work, they're absurdly simple to diagnose. I wanted this in this particular situation, and they wanted that. And those desires appeared to limit me getting what I wanted. They limited my access to my desires. And so, next time you're having an argument with someone, a conflict, 
are just in a really pissy mood, ask yourself, self, what am I wanting right now that is causing me to dig my heels in in this situation? What do I want right now that is causing me to get angry with this other person? And we need to go deeper than just, well, I wanted to watch a football game and this person got in my way. I wanted the day to go a certain way and this person interrupted my schedule. Or I wanted this promotion and this person turned in a better report and they got it. You see, that's just the situation Those are just the symptoms, the agents, the instruments. What we have to ask ourselves is, what is the real gain or loss that we're worried about, that we are pursuing or preventing? What deeper possession or longing is the thing that I'm coveting in this moment simply a proxy for? And these aren't just rhetorical questions that I want you to kind of you know, think about in the sermon and move on. These aren't just helping to make my point. I want you to ask these things. Take them into your community group because unless you are meeting like right after the service, which I think one of the groups is, there will be a moment between now and your group meeting where you can ask these questions, where you can say, why am I so opposed to this person? Why do I feel angry with them? Why do I want something that they have so badly that I'm willing to risk the relationship over it? Maybe bring an example into your community group. And if you're unwilling to do that, maybe you can ask, why am I unwilling? What do I treasure about this group's approval of me that I'm unwilling to open up myself to them? You covet, verse 2, and you cannot obtain. So, you fight and quarrel. When we're blocked, we fight, we lash out, we quarrel. And covet, this word is normally translated as envy in our Bibles. It sets its sight on not just the object, but the person. It's a desire to possess, not just something that someone has, but to possess in such a way that it diminishes that person's having. The etymology of our word envy, it comes from this Latin word invidia, which I think would be just a killer name for like a black metal band. I mean, invidia, that is just perfect. I should trademark it. It it is to look maliciously upon another person because of something they possess. It is to look with evil intent. So giving someone the evil eye, that's what we're talking about. It's pretty dark. It's pretty macabre, pretty shady. Because it's not just wanting something you don't have, but it's wanting the other person not to have it. Envy, as is quoted in the bulletin, is the resentment of someone else's good plus the itch to despoil her of it. What a great picture. What a disturbing picture the itch to despoil the other person of it. You see, envy operates in this zero-sum world, and it believes that being depends upon possessing, that what we possess and have says something fundamental about who we are 
And if we live in a supposedly closed system, then that means that someone else having more means me having less. And we see each other as rivals, as adversaries. And we resent each other's either real or perceived gains and possessions. And notice this week, if you haven't already, it's pretty obvious, but our political messaging is just teeming with this. It is to motivate partisan loyalty in a zero-sum world. That politicians, parties seek to create demand for their product, postulating this diminishing supply of whatever it is they think you value. Your job, money, your cultural or religious heritage. And what they say is that you value this, and do you see how it's going to go away without me, without us? There's a some, some other group that wants to take it away, and they become their, our adversary. And this is just the politics of envy, and it is so powerful as a motivator to, loyal, to loyalty, to be loyal to a particular politician or party or philosophy because they set themselves up as the life rafts on the Titanic. You need us to survive this diminishing world. There's only so much happiness and possession to go, go around, and so let us help you protect your interest. That's what's going on in our political world, and I'm not that astute for pointing it out. Maybe you see through that. Maybe you're perceptive enough. Maybe you're cynical enough, but that doesn't work on you. But interpersonally, how does this work? Isn't this sort of miserly spirit that I've got to protect what's mine, that there's only so much to go around, that this person is an adversary and I've got to block them from taking my stuff? Isn't that exactly what holding a grudge is all about? Isn't that exactly what we're doing when we sort of give someone, you know, the cold shoulder? Because we reason, well, if I'm nice to them too soon, then they won't understand how they've made me feel. I've got to be cold to them. I can't be nice to them because that would communicate that everything's okay and that I've just forgiven and forgotten. Or aren't these our hopes when we're a little bit passive-aggressive with other people? I'm from the South, so I can see this. I see it in myself. We learned that one actually in Sunday school, how to be passive-aggressive. It's part of the Beatitudes for Southerners. What passive-aggressivity is is that we've been offended but we have to operate a certain way socially that we don't get outside of ourselves and we, you know, stay somewhat dignified. But we're going to drill this person. We're going to let them know that they've offended us. We want them to feel what we're feeling. We want them to hurt like they have hurt us. We feel entitled to their pain. Their loss whether it's just a feeling or whether it's an actual physical loss. It makes us feel better having been hurt by them. In Iowa in the late 80s, there's this fascinating story. This really happened. You can go look it up on the Internet if you don't believe me because everything on the Internet is true. But these two high school girls in the late 80s, they were bitter rivals, and they did all of sort of the 
the pageantry type of ladder. They climbed up that, and one made it to Harvest Queen, and one made it to Homecoming Queen. But you see, the beauty pageants, they were just a proxy for a much deeper and much larger, much more passionate battle. That was just the undercard. The main event was this boy that they were competitive about, and they had to have this boy. And so they both forced him to choose, and choose he did. He chose Miss Homecoming. Well, after a while, this boy and Miss Homecoming, they announced their engagement and sent out these beautiful cards, and Miss Harvest Queen is just at her house seething, just so upset, enraged, not simply to losing this boy, because if this boy had married a third party, it probably wouldn't have been that big a deal, but marrying the homecoming queen, she couldn't let that stand. Losing to Miss Homecoming, her hated rival, was not tolerable. So what did she do? She strangled her with a leather belt. Envy, hopefully, will not lead you to actual murder, but it can keep us angry, right? And this is why Jesus equates anger and murder, because envy leads to anger And it leads to trying to dispossess something from someone else's life. It can kill relationships. It can kill community. It can murder our friends in a figurative way. The Proverbs passage that we read, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Unchecked, it will eat us alive from the inside out. So, what do we do? What's the remedy? Just to wrap up here. Don't you know, James said, that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That sounds pretty serious. We don't want that. Well, James here is not talking about this bubble kind of existence where all of the bad people are out here, that's the world, and all of the good people live in this little safe environment, and we reflect God's love to each other, and we're so much better than everyone else. That is not what he's talking about. What he is saying is that when you align your purpose and life with anything that is moving away from God, with persons, things, philosophies, that is friendship with the world, and it puts us at enmity with God and what He wants to do in our lives and in the world. And to be friends in the ancient world was much more than just sort of the Facebook acquaintances that we have. To be friends with someone was to be aligned with their purpose, with their hopes, and to help serve that that and uphold them, to have the same mind, to have the same view of reality. And so, if we are saying that what I believe to be true about the world is that God made the world and everything in it and that Jesus has come to redeem it, and then we live out of the idea that the point of life is acquiring stuff and possessing stuff, that having, that being depends upon having. If that's the way we live life, that is enmity, not just with God, but with what we say is true about us. That's what we call, friends, hypocrisy. If we 
come to church and we sing these great songs, we profess our faith at the end of the service, but we believe that we live fundamentally in a competitive world where I've got to grab everything that I can have and possibly want to be happy, then of course we're going to envy those who have what we want. And that is living at enmity with God's world that He wants to create. And so as we come to this table, what we need to see each and every time is that life isn't a zero-sum game. Life isn't a closed system because what we believe is that this is not all that exists, that the material things in this world, the resources in this world are not all that exist. And then as we come to the table, we see that we actually can't measure the depths of God's goodness toward us, that every time we need it, every time we ask for it, He gives us more grace, not because we are deserving, but because giving grace is what God does, because grace and love and mercy is constantly overflowing from the very center of who He is. As Doc Holliday tells us, if we measure our life by having, we will never have enough because we never close that distance between the wanting and the having. There will always be someone with more. And if that's our belief, our life, our legacy will be marked by behaviors that honor that belief. But friends, when, if you're part of InTown, if you're a Christian here, when Christians do that, it's even more vulgar, it's more garish because we're saying that the most central thing about us is this eternal possession of impossible kindness, of the unconditional eternal love of God. And so when we build our lives upon buying, wanting, longing for what others have, we're not just unrestrained consumers like almost everyone is in the Western world, but we're hoarders. We're the scroogiest of all scrooges because what we say we believe is that we have this invaluable possession that is greater than anything that we could possess and hold on to, and yet we don't live that way. We keep piling on. But John tells us, the writer of the Gospels and the epistles, this is how God showed His love among us, that He sent His one and only Son so that we might live through Him. The one person who has the right to justly require everything from you, to take, to possess, instead chooses to give us everything. And the more that we align ourselves with that central act, the more that we realize that God loved me and gave Himself for me, and we live inside a community that reinforces this, the more that that Spirit begins to dwell within our spirit. And we can come to learn how to undermine our envy. Our being is not tied to having, but our being is a being in God, and that that will be enough. That instead of destroying others, we can build others up. We can lift others up and make them beautiful rather than trying to take things away. And in this table, we see that Jesus, you see, doesn't destroy others, 
but he allows himself to be destroyed. He allows your envy and my envy to destroy him. And he absorbs it and takes it and throws it away. So be done with it. It is not the path to happiness. Let's come to the table of God. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we come to feed upon your son's body. And we pray that you would restore us, renew us, that you would give us a sense of possessing that can never become less. I pray that we would see the riches of your love, the riches of what you want to do in our lives as we begin to experience that love. And would you make that believable to us, make that tangible to us as we come and participate in this meal. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.